Well, all of us have goals in life. A goal is something that we have a, a set target that we're seeking to achieve. And for example, one of the most common goals that people have is the goal of retirement. And in order to achieve that, you have to save up enough money uh, while you're working so that you can stop. And uh, I'm th- sure that everybody here uh, is wanting to be in that place. And for those who are already in their, that place, they're uh, happy about that. But you know, in, in each stage of life, we find ourselves with different goals when we're young. You know, we probably just have the goal of finishing school. Uh, and for some, you know, that's a goal they don't even achieve. But for others, they want to go even beyond that. I don't just want to finish school. I want to be the top of my class. I want to have a 4.0. Why? Because I have a goal beyond this school to more school because I want to go to the best colleges. And for those who are in college, oftentimes the goal is I want to finish my degree. I want to get that degree so I can get a good job. And then, you know, once you're in the, you know, the workforce, it's like, well, I want to find the job that I love. I have the goal of getting a job that, you know, really means something to me, but also hopefully, you know, pays me, you know, a good amount of money as well. And so we have that. And, you know, people who are single often have the goal of finding that special person that they can marry. Those who are, you know, just married oftentimes have the goal of buying their first house. And, you know, so we have all sorts of goals in life and goals are, are good. They're, they're something that, uh, we need to have, but the question I want us to ask this morning is what is the number one goal that you have for your life? What's the most important goal that you are pursuing? What's the most important thing that you are seeking to achieve? Which goal in your life is your greatest priority? You know, as Christians, we have many different goals in life. But there's one goal that each one of us should have. One goal that should supersede all other goals. One goal that should be the top priority, the number one goal of our life. And that is the goal of becoming more like Jesus. That goal should be more important than any other goal that we have, whether it be, you know, climbing the corporate ladder, graduating top of your class, finding that special someone, whatever it may be, this goal should be higher, more important in your life than anything else. You know, in fact, everything else that life brings you is really God's training ground for accomplishing this goal. You think, you know, I don't really like this stage of life where I'm in school. I don't like this stage of life where I'm in a career I don't like, or I don't like this stage of life of retirement. I wish I could do more or whatever stage of life you're in. Realize that's a stage of life where God is using those things, those relationships, uh, your, your, whatever is going on in your life to ultimately help bring you to this goal of becoming more like Jesus Christ. So that should be our goal, but you know we hear things all the time as Christians of things we should do, but if we don't get practical, if we don't really understand, well, what can we do to make that my number one goal? For many Christians, it isn't. So the question is, what can I do to change that? What can I practically do to make Becoming like Jesus, the number one goal in my life. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. And we're going to discover practical ways to make Jesus the number one goal in our life by looking at how the Apostle Paul did that in his life. 
In Philippians chapter 3, Paul reveals to us that really Jesus is the number one goal. Becoming more like Jesus is what his main priority is. And he shares with us in this chapter three practical ways in which he pursued that goal, in which he did to help that goal become a reality in his life. And it's those three things that I really want us to focus on this morning so that we too can pursue this goal in a proper way, in a good way to help us achieve becoming more like Jesus every day of our lives. And so Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 16 are the verses we're going to cover this morning. I want to read the whole thing to start with, just to kind of see the heart of Paul in this and his desire to be more like Jesus. And then we'll break down the three different practical ways that he actually did that. And so starting in verse 3, it says this, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is apart from the law, which is from the law, sorry, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. In these verses, you'll see several different points in which Paul makes statements that definitely show what he was pursuing, what his goal was, the number one goal of Paul's life. Look at some of the statements he makes, starting here in verse 8. It says, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, that I might gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in Him. Verse 10, that I may know Him. Verse 12, that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's goal in life was knowing Jesus, was serving Jesus, was becoming more like Jesus. And in these verses, Paul reveals three practical things that he did to achieve that goal, to be more like Jesus. And these are the three things that I want us to focus on this morning because they are essential things to help us accomplish that goal as well. The first thing that Paul does to help him become more like Jesus is seen in verses 3 through 9, and we'll break this down. Starting in verses 3 and 4, it says this, 
For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Paul starts off with this reality that nobody should have confidence in their flesh. We shouldn't have confidence that the works that we do in this life can somehow make us right with God, can somehow save us before God, that my confidence is in what I do. And Paul's saying that shouldn't be the way that it is. But he's saying, you know what, but for those who might struggle with that, for those, and he's speaking to many of the Jews that he'd be writing to who were struggling with confidence in their works, confidence in what they did to try to gain God's approval, gain righteousness, gain salvation. He's saying, hey, if that's you, if you're in that boat and you think that your works of the flesh can gain that in your life, well, let me tell you a little bit about my, my life. I more so. If anyone could say the works of the flesh could gain righteousness, salvation, could gain approval for God, I mean, my resume is going to top yours. And this is what Paul wants us to see next. He wants us to see his religious background, the resume that he has. And if he was going to put confidence in the flesh, this is the area that he would put confidence in. Now, he doesn't put confidence in this because he knows it's not what he should. But he says, hey, if that's your thinking, let me just show what my resume would look like if I wanted to throw that out there. Verses 5 and 6, he says this, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So in this religious resume that Paul shares with us, he gives us seven things that he could say, well, hey, look at this. Look what I have going for me. Look what I could kind of depend on in the flesh. The first one is his confidence in his Jewish ritual. Hey, I was circumcised the eighth day. I followed the rituals of Judaism. Even from an infant, my parents had me done like that. He was confident in his Jewish race. I'm of the stock of Israel. In his Jewish rank, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. In the Jewish tradition, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was confident in his religious position of Pharisee. In his zeal, hey, I have so much zeal, I was willing to persecute the church. And he was confident in his legalistic righteousness. As to the righteousness that is in the law, I was found blameless. This is a pretty impressive religious resume. You know, Paul was the poster boy of Judaism. He was the one that everyone would elevate and look at and say, wow, there's the kind of Jew that you want to be. And Paul's saying, hey, if you're trying to depend on your flesh to make you right with God, what you have accomplished before the Lord, let me show you my resume. Let me show you what I have done to try to accomplish those things. But notice what Paul goes on to say, which is the most important part of this in verses 7 through 9. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. 
Notice what Paul says here. He gives his whole resume, all seven things at all. Oh, look at what I have done. And then he goes right into saying this statement, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Paul said, hey, look at my religious resume and all that those things gained me. I take what was gained to me in that and I count them as loss. What Paul is saying is the things that I thought were gaining me ground, the things that I thought were getting me closer to God, the things that I thought were were making God approve of me, I count them as loss now. Why? Because I realized they weren't getting me closer to God. They were keeping me from Him. They weren't helping me gain ground. They were losing me ground. I count them as loss so that I might gain what truly is valuable, Christ. I was missing out on it because this is what I was trying to depend on in my relationship with God. I thought doing this, depending on this, is what would make me approved, make me loved, make me saved. And I lose it all because I realized it was keeping me from Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ. Not only does Paul count these things as loss, something that is worthless now to him, but he says, I also count them as rubbish. Now, this Greek word that Paul uses here, translated rubbish, literally should be translated dung or manure. It's something that not only is worthless to the Jewish culture, but also something that would have been very offensive. So not only do I count it lost, not only is this something that's worthless to me, it's even worse than that. It's like dung. It's offensive to me. So why was his religious resume something that was so worthless and offensive in his eyes? ultimately because it kept him from Jesus. It told him that he could be saved based on his own works, that he could be right with God based on his own efforts. And as long as he believed that lie, it kept him from the truth of Jesus and the work of the cross and where salvation truly comes from. But now that he understands the truth, he concluded that everything that spoke of me everything that I used to identify with, everything that I was trying to do in order to achieve some relationship with God, I count those things as lost. My religious resume is lost. It's not only lost, it's not only worthless, it's like dung to me. I empty myself of it because I realize it is offensive. It doesn't help me achieve salvation. It does not help me get closer to God. You know, I find this fitting that Paul uses this term rubbish or dung because what do we do with that we get rid of it you flush it if it's in a baby's diaper you throw it away if it's in cat litter you get rid of it you empty it we don't want to have that in our house we don't want to keep that in our life and paul's saying that's how i view my religious resume that's how i review all these works that i used to do i empty myself of any dependence on that anymore and now i am fully just trusting jesus alone for my relationship with the Lord. The first thing Paul realized he needed to do before he could really pursue Christ was to empty himself of that junk, to throw away the thought that he could earn salvation through his works. And he goes on to say in verse 9, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God 
by faith. Paul wanted to be found in Jesus. He didn't want to be found in anything else. This Greek word translated found means to be seen or present in something. You know, Paul's basically saying, for years, you know, I was found in something other than Christ. I was found in my religious resume, which consisted of my ritual and my race and rank and tradition and religious position and zeal and my legalistic righteousness. Those were the things that I was found in. And other people, when they looked at my life, they think, man, you're doing well. You must have a great relationship with God. You must be good because of all these things that you do. And I was found in that. I was seen in that. I was present in that. But he says, I don't want to be found in those things any longer. I now want to be found only in one thing, and that is in Jesus Christ. You know, there are many people today who were Paul was, who think, you know what, if I'm found in some kind of religious activity, if I'm found through, you know, tradition or religious position or ritual, or, you know, we have all these different things that we think, these are the things that are going to make me right with God. These are the things that are going to bring me close to God. These are the things that are going to make God accept me. We need to realize, no, being found in all those things just leads you away from God, not to Him. Only being found in Jesus is the way to get true salvation in relationship with God. So Paul discovered the truth that these things in his religious resume, they're not getting me right with God. They're keeping me from Him. And so Paul says, For years I was found in my own attempts to be righteous through keeping the law. And as we saw in the book of Romans, it's impossible to do. Everybody has broken the law. Nobody can keep it right. So Paul says, I used to be found in myself. I used to be found in trying to be righteous through my works, but now I'm found in Jesus. And the righteousness that I now have doesn't come through my works. It comes through faith in Christ. I've discovered that righteousness can come outside of me trying to do all these things for God and to try to achieve it myself. He says, no, I have put my faith in the work of Jesus Christ. He has done the work. I put my faith in that. And that is what gives me the righteousness that I need before the Lord. All of us here this morning are going to be found in something. We're going to be seen. We're going to be present in something. For years, for Paul, it was his religious resume. But then there was that change. He was now found in Christ. And in order for that change to happen, there had to be a change in the perspective of Paul where he recognized, I'm going to empty myself of these things that I used to be found in, these things that I used to depend upon to make me right with God. And now I'm going to focus on faith in Christ being the way in which I am saved, in which I am right with God. That's why Paul says, I count them all as loss. I count them as rubbish or dung. They're worthless. They're offensive to me. I want to empty them from my life. Why? Because he says, so I may gain Christ. That's my heart. That's my desire. That's what I want. These things keep me from that. And so I'm emptying myself of them, of any dependence upon them, so that I can be fully dependent on Jesus. The first practical thing that Paul did to make becoming Jesus the number one goal of his life was he emptied himself of everything he used to be found in and placed his faith in Jesus alone to make him righteous. If you want becoming like Jesus to be the number one goal in your life, then your faith in Jesus has to be the foundation 
to your relationship with God. You need to empty yourself of any other thought of, I'm going to be right with God through this work that I do, or I'm going to be right with God through this ritual that I've done, or I'm going to be right with God through anything else besides faith in Jesus. You've got to empty yourself of that thinking. Empty yourself of a belief that I can be right with God in some other way than trusting Jesus alone to save me. You see, because if you're thinking, you know what, yeah, it's Jesus, but it's plus all these other things that I do, he's never going to be the one that you really have as the goal to be like, because what's really going to be your goal is doing these works, because you believe if I don't do these works, then I'm never going to be right before God. If I don't do these works, he's never going to approve me. If I don't do these works, he's never going to love me. And so you're going to have this works-based relationship with him, and you're not really going to be focused on being like Jesus. You're going to be focused on working for the Lord and it's going to hinder you from this goal that you should and that I should have. The second thing that Paul does to help him become more like Jesus is in verses 10 and 11. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death if by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul not only wanted to be found in Jesus alone, but also notice what he says here. He wants, he has this longing to know Jesus. Paul says that I may know him. You know, the Greek word translated know here is gnosko. It means to understand, perceive, to have an intimate knowledge of someone to experience them. Now, in the Greek language, we often have an issue when we translate things because like this word know, we have one word in the English language. Love, we have one word in the English language. But the Greeks had many more. The Greeks actually had 15 different words that could be translated know in English because knowledge for them was very important and they wanted to make sure you knew what knowledge they were speaking of. And so they had all these different words to describe different types of Knowledge. So they had a word for absolute knowledge that only God has, for past knowledge, for future knowledge, for the absence of knowledge, the discovery of knowledge, things that can't be known. But they also had this word, gnosko, which spoke of an intimate experiential knowledge of something or someone. The kind of knowledge that can only be achieved through an intimate relationship with a person. It's not book knowledge. It's not just facts about an individual. It's something that is achieved through an intimate relationship based on experience. You see, I could read Billy Graham's biography. I could learn all about his life. I could learn about the evangelistic crusades that he spoke at. I could even read all the different sermons that he gave. I could read every book that he ever published. And this would give me a certain factual knowledge about Billy Graham. But it would not give me the kind of knowledge that Paul is speaking of here because it, it wouldn't be an intimate, personal, experiential knowledge because I've never met the man. I don't know him intimately. I don't know him personally. And so just reading books about him would give me factual knowledge, but it would not give me this intimate knowledge that Paul is sharing. Now, I could say I gnosko, I have a personal knowledge of my wife, Jenny. Because my knowledge isn't based on a book that she wrote. My knowledge isn't based on some facts that I learned about her. My knowledge is based on an intimate relationship that I have with her. And so if I was speaking in Greek and I was speaking of how I know my wife, I would use this term because it refers to that kind of knowledge, that intimate personal knowledge that is based on a relationship that I have with her. 
So you see, this is the word that Paul is using. I want to know Christ this way. Sadly, many people in the world today, they know facts about Jesus. You know, you could ask them about the the Christmas story and they could tell you about the virgin birth and they could tell you about the wise men and the shepherds and and they could tell you about miracles that he did. They could tell you that he died on a cross. They could tell you he rose from the dead. They could tell you all sorts of facts that they have heard from someone preaching or from reading the Bible. But yet, when it comes to the relationship of intimacy, something that's personal, they don't have it. It's just factual. But but it's not intimate, it's not personal, it's not something that they really have deeply. And when Paul says, I want to know Jesus, he's not saying, I just want to know some more facts. Give me some more stories. I want to know a little more information. No, 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 I want to know Jesus deeply. I want to know him personally. I want to know him intimately. And then Paul goes on to share three specific areas that he wants to have an intimate and personal knowledge of Jesus. The first area Paul wants an intimate and personal knowledge of Jesus is in the power of his resurrection. I'm sure this is something that all of us as Christians would say, yes, I want an intimate personal knowledge of the power that rose Jesus from the dead. Sign me up. I want that power in my life. I want to personally understand that. I want to experience that kind of power. That sounds great. Yes, I want to know Jesus that way. I'm sure every Christian would would sign up with Paul saying, yeah, I want to know the Lord intimately and personally and experientially in this way, in the power of the resurrection. But I wonder how many of us would make that same statement of the second thing that Paul says. He wants to know not only the power of the resurrection, but he says also the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. How many of you have ever desired to fellowship in Jesus' sufferings? How many of you have honestly ever prayed a prayer, God, let me suffer as you did, that I might know you personally and intimately more in that way? Oh, Lord, help me know the power of your resurrection. I'll pray that prayer all night long, but maybe not the prayer of, I want to experience, I want to really intimately know the fellowship of your sufferings. For us, most of the time, it's like, Lord, you can count me out on that one. I don't really need to know that one intimately. That one can just be factual. Hey, yeah, you died on the cross. You suffered. You were beaten. I'll just know factual information about what you went through for me, but I don't want to experience that. I don't want to know that from any type of experiential knowledge. I'd rather just experience the power of the resurrection. You know, the problem with that kind of thinking is that we miss out on so much knowledge of Jesus. I love the fact that Paul didn't just want bits and pieces of knowledge. I want this because it sounds good, but I don't want that because it doesn't sound so nice. No, Lord, I want it all. I want to know you completely. And I found that in the times of suffering like Jesus did, when you suffer especially for him, there's a growth that comes. There's an understanding that comes that can't happen when everything's going well. When life's great, there's something that just comes to us that we grow in in the midst of suffering. We get to discover God in deep ways as our comforter, as our deliverer, 
as our protector, as our strengthener, as our peace giver. Because you know what? When everything's going great, we don't see that in Jesus in the same way. We don't experience that, but yet we go through these things and all of a sudden we realize, wow, there's so much more to you than I ever understood. There's so much more to know about you than I ever could. And if I want to be like you, I need to know these things so that I can do that. So the first thing that Paul wants to intimately and personally know is the power of Jesus' resurrection. The second is the fellowship of His suffering. And the third is how to be conformed to His death. This is another one of those things that we don't really want to know personally, experientially, intimately. Tell me all about the death. Let me read the crucifixion story. I'm even willing to get like a historical account of all the suffering that Jesus went through and how brutal it was to be crucified. Give me the facts. But don't ask me to die to myself. Don't ask me to experience any type of death in my life because I don't want that. I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want the life-giving power. I don't want to experience the struggle of dying to myself. But Galatians 2.20 gives us a wonderful, important challenge. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You know, it's only when we die to ourselves that we can truly live for the Lord. We are one of the biggest hindrances to living for Jesus Christ. This desire to please ourselves, to live for ourselves, and we got to get to that place where I'm dead to myself, dead to living for me, dead for pursuing my will, and now I'm going to pursue the will of Jesus Christ. My life, my goal is to be more like Him and live for Him. The second practical thing that Paul did to make becoming like Jesus the number one goal in his life was he pursued knowing all of Jesus intimately and personally, which included suffering, which included death to himself. If you want becoming like Jesus to be the number one goal in your life, then you have to pursue knowing all of Jesus intimately and personally. Don't just pick bits and pieces. Oh, this really sounds great. I want to know more intimately about this. Well, it's great that you pursue that, but don't neglect others. Lord, I want to know it all. And I know some of it's going to be hard. I know some of it's going to be difficult. I know some of it's going to be uh, really difficult, but yet I want to know you. I want to experience this. I want to gain a deep, deep understanding and relationship of you because I want to be more like you. The only way you're going to really receive this intimate, personal knowledge of Jesus is if you regularly spend time with him. You gotta spend that personal time that has to be regular in your life. The natural byproduct of regular time with anyone is you start to know them more, but you also often start to become like them more. You know, my parents have been married for now 50 years. We just went this year to celebrate in California. And you know, they are so much like each other now, and they weren't when I was young. All these years together, they start, they just become more and more like one another. And, you know, even Lee and Lupe today are dressed like one another because they've been married so long as well. But, you know, it happens. You become more like each other the longer you're together. And that's a good thing when it's Jesus, especially. Hey, I want to be more like him. Well, how does it happen? I got to spend regular time with him. 
Oftentimes, the number one goal in our life is the thing that we give the most time to. And so if you're thinking, you know what, Jesus isn't the number one goal in my life, well, probably the thing that you should first start looking at is, where are you giving your time to? If it's not to Jesus, then you shouldn't expect him to be the number one goal. You shouldn't expect becoming like him to be the goal in your life. Why? Because you're not giving him the time that's necessary for that goal to be achieved. And that's one of the first practical things that we can change. Lord, I want that to happen. Well, start spending time with him. Not, Lord, I want that to happen. I'm never going to spend time with you, and I hope it just magically appears. No, i got to make the time for Jesus if this is going to take place. The third practical thing that Paul does to help him become more like Jesus is verses 12 through 14. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also lay hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Twice in these verses, Paul speaks of pressing on, pressing towards. The Greek word translated here, press on, means to pursue or run after something in order to catch it. And Paul shares with us two things that I'm really pressing on towards. I'm running after. I'm seeking to catch it. I want it in my life. The first thing was that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Paul wanted to press on towards. He wanted to hold on to the things that Jesus had laid hold of for him. The second thing that Paul was pressing on towards was the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to note something with both of these things. They reveal that, hey, Paul's not saying my pursuit, the thing I want to press on towards, the thing that I'm I'm actively trying to get is my desire, my will, my purpose in life that I want. It's all about Jesus. I'm doing what he wants, what he's laid hold of me, the call of God on my life. That's what I'm pressing towards. That's what my desire is for. That's what I'm longing to achieve and get hold of. Now, in these verses, Paul mentions three things that are involved in effectively pressing on and pursuing the call of God in your life. The first thing is a recognition that you haven't attained it yet. Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. If Paul's saying that, you and I surely will be saying that. Paul recognizes, I'm not claiming that I've attained this. I'm not claiming that I've accomplished all that God has in my life. I'm not claiming that I'm perfect and I've overcome all the sins or struggles that I have. He's not making that claim at all. I have not obtained it. I have not become perfected. I recognize in my own life, I have a lot of growth that still needs to happen. God's still working in me and through me. He's not done with me. There's still more to be done. And so because I understand that, I keep pressing on for these things because I realize I haven't gotten them. I haven't obtained them. I haven't arrived. This is something so important for us to understand about ourselves if we're going to press on and pursue what God has for us. I get kind of worried for some people in ministry that I listen to, and I don't know if they truly believe it, but the way in which they speak about themselves makes you think 
that they believe that they have arrived, that they have attained, that they're perfected. Oh, I got it all together. I don't have any mistakes, any problems, any sin. I've done everything. I'm so wonderful and great and holy and righteous. No, we're not. None of us are. None of us ever will be. There's never going to be a time in our life where we finally say, oh, I've been perfected. I've arrived. I don't have any more to do for the Lord, and He doesn't have any more work to do in me. The only perfection that's going to come is when we get our new glorified bodies after we're dead. In this life, we're always going to need to press on. Press on to what God has for us because we're never going to arrive. And we have to understand that because you know what? When you don't, you're not pressing on. Why press on to something you already think you have? Why press on to something you think, well, I've achieved, I arrived, I've attained? you got to realize, no, i still got a lot that God wants to do in me and through me, and so I'm going to keep pressing on in it. When Spain led the world in the 15th century, her coins reflected her national arrogance and were inscribed, ne plus ultra, which means nothing further, meaning that Spain was the ultimate in the world, has traveled everywhere, seen it all. But then the discovery of the new world happened, and Spain realized she was not the end of the world, and so she had to change the inscription on the coins to plus ultra, meaning more beyond. I think many Christians are like Spain used to be. Oh, there's nothing more. We, 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 we've done it all. We arrived when they need to realize, no, oh, there's much more beyond this. God has so much more to do in you and through you and get away from that arrogant mindset that you have spiritually arrived at a place that you definitely have not. So the first thing that is involved in effectively pressing on, effectively pursuing the call of God in your life is a recognition that you haven't attained it. The second thing is what Paul says in verse 13, forgetting those things which are behind. One of the biggest hindrances to moving forward is our past, is not letting go, is not being willing to forget. And there are two specific things within our past that all of us struggle so often with holding on to, with relying upon, with not being willing to forget. The first one is a positive thing that we still need to let go of. The second one is a negative thing. And let's start with the positive thing. And that is our past successes. You can't live in the present on past successes. You can learn from them. You can grow through them, but don't think, well, now I'm fine today because of what I did last year or last month or whatever it may be. And too often that that's our, our mindset. You know, oh, I'm just going to live in the past. Live on those past successes. Middle-aged men often struggle with living in the past. They love to tell you about how successful they love to tell you about how athletic, oh, back in the day when I was in high school, I was a football star and blah, blah, blah. And they love to tell you about how handsome they were and I got all the girls and, you know, they'll, they'll tell all these stories. And you're like, well, lots have changed. But, you know, they love to, to live in the past because they're not happy with the present because they're not as attractive, or they're not as athletic, or they're not as successful, or you know, maybe their glory days were high school, and those days are far behind them. And that's why many people have these midlife crises, because they're like, oh, I'm not what I used to be, and all I do is live in the past instead of the present. And unfortunately, as Christians, we can often do this spiritually. Talk about all that God accomplished in our life in the past. Oh, look what God did at this time. And look at on this mission trip that I went to. And, and look at how God worked in me here. And look at on this and this. And it's always looking back. 
I remember when I first got involved in the Calvary Chapel movement, there were a lot of older guys who always talked about the good old tent days and the revival and the Jesus movement and the hippies and all that God did. And it was like, that's great that God did that. And that's great that you were a part of that. But what's he doing now? That should be the question. Okay, yes, God did lots back then. And I'm glad of it. I'm glad he's done lots in my life. But I can't live off of that. What's he working in my life now? What is he doing in my life now? That should be the focus. And if I'm so caught up in the past, it keeps me from doing what God wants in the present. So the first area that we need to let go of, that we too often hold on to, is past successes. But there's another one that's a more negative one, and that's past failures. And this one I think is even more common among Christians, one that I think causes more problems in the present. You know, our past failures, if we have confessed them before the Lord, they have been forgiven and they have been forgotten. And we need to accept that reality. We need to be willing to move on from them. And too often we buy into the lie of Satan of God can never use you in the present because look at your past. Look what you've done. Look at those sins that you've committed. God can never do something in your life. He can never do something through your life. And we buy that lie. We hold on to these things and we're not willing in the present to say, yes, I used to be that person. Yes, I did those things, but I have been forgiven and God can now change me and he can use me and he can do great things through me. One of the things I love about the Bible is every single person that God did great things through, guess what? They had a sinful past. And some of them had really sinful past. The one that we're reading of here, Paul, yeah, a murderer of Christians. Here's a man that God took and changed from murderer to missionary. God can take past sins that are severe and still change and use you for his glory. And so we need to be willing to say, you know what? I'm not going to hold on to these past failures and allow them to keep me from the present things that God wants to do in my life. The third thing Paul says we need to do if we want to press on is to reach forward to those things which are ahead. The Greek word translated reaching forward means to stretch towards something. The word was used to describe stretching a muscle to its limits, a picture of a runner straining every muscle ultimately to win the goal of, of finishing that race in first. And you see so often where they're coming to the finish line and they're straining and they're pushing everything to try to get across that line first before everyone else because they want to achieve the goal. Giving all you have to continue ahead. So not only do we need to forget the past and move on from those things, but we need to reach forward Stretch out, do all we can to grab hold of what God has ahead of us. And this is the, the reality. It's kind of this twofold thing. Quit looking backwards and being hindered, but also get your eyes forward. Well, where is God leading? Get your eyes towards that and say, I'm going to walk towards those things. I'm going to seek to achieve those things. Because sometimes we just get caught in the present in our circumstances, and it's like, maybe they're not so good, and maybe we're not so pleased with it, and it's like, Lord, I'm missing where you're taking me. And we need to keep our eyes focused on where we're headed so that we can say, hey, that's the journey. That's where I'm going. I got my eyes on Jesus. This is what he has for my life. I'm going to continue to press forward towards it and grab hold of it. So the third practical thing that Paul did to make becoming like Jesus the number one goal of his life was he pressed on and pursued what Jesus had for him. He recognized he hadn't attained it yet. He forgot those things which were behind. 
And he reached forward to what God had ahead of him. If you want becoming like Jesus to be the number one goal in your life, then you have to press on and pursue what Jesus has for your life. Recognizing you haven't obtained it yet, and you never will. Forgetting the past successes, forgetting the past failures, not living on those things, and reaching forward to what God has ahead of you. Becoming like Jesus won't be the number one goal in your life if those things don't take place. Paul finishes with this final encouragement in verses 15 and 16. He says this, Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything, anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Paul says, therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. This mind of saying, hey, the number one goal of life should be to become more like Jesus. All that he's been saying, do you have that mind? But notice what Paul connects it to, someone who's spiritual. It's spiritual maturity to say, the goal of my life, the highest priority is to become like Jesus. That shows spiritual maturity. Spiritual immaturity is, there's another goal. Or maybe there's many more goals that come before the goal of becoming more like Jesus. And so as we grow spiritually, you'll start to see the priorities of your goals shift and change. And Jesus will become more and more of a priority. And all of a sudden, he'll be the number one. Becoming like him will be number one. And that is spiritual maturity. That's growth spiritually that God wants from us. And maybe that's not where you're at. Maybe when you're honest, you say, I got lots of goals that are bigger priorities in my life right now than Jesus. And I don't know how to go from where he's at to number one. Well, as we already mentioned, one of the best ways to start is just get regular time with him. Watch the natural progression of Jesus is now in my life every day. Time with him is regular. And all of a sudden it starts shifting the priorities of my life. Well, you know what? This isn't as important anymore. Jesus is more important. And now this is not so important. And Jesus is more important. And I'm not saying that we should just abandon any other goal in your life. It's making sure that the number one priority is Jesus. You get that straight, that right, everything else works. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things then will be added to us. Paul also says, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. So if there are those of you reading this and you think, ah, no, being Jesus becoming the number one goal of my life, that's not that important. Paul is confident. God will reveal that you're wrong. God will reveal that that is the most important thing and you need to do that. And Paul's confident, you know, even if these words don't move you, I'm sure the Spirit of the Lord will. Because he wants us to be in this place. He wants to bring us to this place where becoming more like Jesus is the goal of our life. And so he's going to keep working. He's going to keep doing that work in us. And Paul ends by saying, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Paul wants every believer, no matter what starting point you're at, to come to the conclusion, I want Jesus to be the number one goal. I want becoming like him to be the priority of my life. And right now I'm, I'm a baby Christian or maybe I'm mature or maybe I'm in the middle or you know, I'm not quite there. Hey, 
that that should start with a longing, a desire, I want that. And then start recognizing these three practical things that we can do. That your faith in Jesus has to be the foundation to your relationship with God. Don't think that you're going to get the approval by your works. Don't focus on that. Focus on becoming more like Jesus. The works will just be a byproduct of that. Pursue knowing all of Jesus intimately and personally, which comes through time with Him. And press on and pursue what Jesus has for your life. Don't get caught up thinking you already attained or thinking of things in the past. Just keep your eyes focused on what Jesus has. Let's pray.